1: Happy Monday, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia at Bank Julius Baer, and today I'll be giving you the first of our new podcast series of weekly market updates. The S&P 500 index was down 0.7% on Friday. If you add that to the other four days of last week, it was down 4.8% for the week. That's the biggest weekly decline since the dark days of June. There's no denying the technicals have deteriorated. The S&P's upward support line that had been in place since June failed last Thursday, and it's now 5.5% away from making a new yearly low. What's taking the market down, we all know, is interest rates. In the past, when the Fed funds rate and the 10-year treasury yield met, that's usually when tightening came to an end. Well, today, the 10-year yield is at 3.4%. That's only 90 basis points higher than the Fed funds rate. 90 basis points on the Fed funds rate wouldn't be too much cause for concern. But especially after August's inflation reading came out last week, the market doesn't seem to think 90 basis points is going to be enough. And that's because things like rent of primary residence, that's what the Fed uses for real estate, By the way, it has the highest weighting of any input in the inflation basket at 30%, but also medical care, food away from home. They all kept moving higher, and they're classified as sticky price items. Sticky price means that once it moves, it's hard to bring back down, even if the demand for that item or the cost of making it does come down. And all told, sticky price items rose 6.1% in August over August last year. That takes them to above the previous high of 1991, and to a rate that it hasn't been at since 1982. So last week, several Wall Street banks started saying the Fed has to move faster and forecast a 100 basis point increase in the Fed Fund's rate that meets on Wednesday. That's a lot more than what the futures market's pricing. It expects 79 basis points. Of course, the Fed doesn't move in increments like 79, so really that means 75. But then after that, the futures market looks for another 69 basis points in November, 39 basis points in December, add those all up and it infers a Fed Fund's rate of 4.35%, which is quite a lot higher than the 2.5 it's at now. But some Wall Street analysts are saying even that's not enough. One investment bank wrote last week it expects the Fed funds rate to go to 4.9% by the first quarter of next year, even above 5% if the labor market stays tight. We'll know what the Fed's own assumptions are on Wednesday because it's also going to release the dot pot That shows what each official forecasts for the fed funds rate to be in between now and then the fed doesn't like it. When wall street takes over the narrative, it might want to slow things down. It can't say anything before Wednesday because it's blackout period now, but it does have other ways of communicating. For example, it's widely thought the journalist who covers the fed at the wall street journal is sometimes used as a way of communicating, that's currently a fellow named Nick Timoros, and he tweeted on Friday after the University of Michigan released its September Consumer Sentiment Survey, specifically he pointed out that the expected inflation rate in the year ahead fell to 4.6%, the lowest since last September, and long-run inflation expectations are below the 29 to 3.1% range for the first time since July 2021. That's also one of the key inflation barometers the Fed uses as an input for its policy framework, the long-run inflation expectations of the University of Michigan survey. So the fact it's declining is very good, and maybe it's wishful thinking, but to the extent that Mr. Timmeraus is pointing it out, that also might be a good thing. It also suggests other inflation-linked series might continue the downtrend they started in July and August. One that came out last week was the New York Fed's Consumer Survey, and there was a sharp decline in what respondents said they think the inflation rate would be both a year from now and three years from now. Gasoline is where they see the biggest change, In June respondents in the New York State Survey said they expected gas prices to be 6% higher a year later, Well, in August, they said they thought gas prices next year will be the same as they are now. And for food, they see next year's price increase at 5%. That's half what they said a few months ago. Rent price expectations are falling too. They went from about 11% to 9% for next year. And that's important because it's a third of the index. You might have seen last week, the 30-year fixed mortgage rate rose to above 6%. It was 3.3% at the beginning this year. For the average American buying a new home today, the monthly mortgage payment is equivalent to 95 hours of wages. Well, the average American works 136 hours a month. So that means 70% of their income will go toward paying down that mortgage. Clearly, you need a spouse who's also working if you're going to buy a home. The golden rule is people shouldn't spend more than 28% of their income on their mortgage. And the last time this new home mortgage payment to average hourly earnings ratio got this high was in 2007. After that, property prices fell. And home prices are starting to fall now too. The Case-Shiller Nationwide Home Price Index hasn't peaked out, but it's a very lagged index. The last month for that series was June According to the real estate brokerage Redfin, property prices peaked in July and are down 5% since then in the United States. And that's a trend that's probably going to continue because the percent of homes for sale that have seen price cuts in the last month has risen from an average of about 10% over the last decade to 22% today. And the direction still looks up. The big question is, is the market in a frame of mind to see this, to see that The trends are showing us inflation is coming down because we don't have yet long enough time series to say definitively conclusively that the inflation pressures are well and truly abating. For example, talking about property, I mentioned that in the CPI basket, it's measured by owner's equivalent rent. That typically lags home prices by six to eight months. Well, I just told you that according to Redfin, the peak in home prices was in July. So that means four to six months to go before it shows up in the rental prices. And four to six months is a long time for a market that's been once bitten twice shy by inflation. It's worried about a recession, too. Not so much in the U.S., perhaps, but a global one. Because it's not just the Fed that's been raising rates. Central banks all over the world have been raising rates. As hedge fund manager Stanley Druckenmiller said in a YouTube video done by Palantir Technologies on Friday, central banks are like, quote, unquote, reformed smokers. He said they've gone from printing a bunch of money, like driving a Porsche at 200 miles an hour, by not only taking the foot off the gas, but just slamming the brakes on. He's right it's hardly what you'd call a coordinated and gentle tightening on the part of the global central banks it's more like everyone seems to be trying to outdo each other and the communication from most of them is that it's not going to stop and that's led people to worry about a global recession take korea for example the bank of korea was comparably early in its policy normalization in fact it was among the first to raise rates way back in july last year 8 months before the fed it's hawkish right up to today but that hasn't stopped the won From falling 17% versus the dollar since then. And today at 1,390, it's almost about to break the psychologically significant 1,400 level that it only breached twice before in history, the global financial crisis and the Asian crisis. That might sound surprising. Is Korea really in that bad shape While exports are 45% of Korea's GDP, its largest export is semiconductors, and demand for those doesn't look very good. Korean August DRAM exports were announced last week. They fell 25% over August last year. And Korean exports of smartphones, displays, and computers all fell too. That's evidence of less demand for technology-related goods globally. Then on the other hand, because Korea is the world's eighth largest energy consumer, But it doesn't have any energy of its own or very little. It imports 94% of the energy it uses. The falling won becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because the lower the won goes, the more Korea has to pay for its energy and the other things that it imports. So who would have thought an export powerhouse like Korea would in fact be running a trade deficit? But all of a sudden it is. In fact, the largest ever. And that's the kind of thing that's making even the S&P 500 index skittish because a third of S&P revenues are are from overseas. S&P 500 companies with higher than average domestic revenues are down 11% year-to-date. That's true. But those with higher than average revenue exposure outside the United States are down 23%. One of those is FedEx, and it lost 23% of its value not so far this year, but on Friday alone. Friday last week, and that puts it down 38% year-to-date. FedEx pre-announced its last quarter's EPS at $3.33, way lower than the $5.14 the street was looking for. And for this quarter, it's guiding for $2.65 or greater. The consensus was looking for 5.39. The CEO went on TV on Thursday to explain why. He said it's because in his opinion, the world is going into a recession. Since June, the company's been seeing volume decline in every segment around the world and the weekly numbers aren't looking any better. He said, we are a reflection of everybody else's business, especially the high value economy in the world. Actually, some analysts are skeptical. They think FedEx might be using the global economy as an excuse. FedEx has one big problem, which is that it runs two separate networks. FedEx Ground uses thousands of independent contractors who take packages from sorting facilities to final customers. The idea was to reduce fixed costs, but it's a cumbersome process, and now the contractors are organizing to demand better compensation. Then the other network is the express drivers who are on FedEx's payroll, who often deliver packages to the exact same places the independent contractors just were at. UPS, on the other hand, has a unified network. Its share price didn't tank nearly as much after FedEx CEO went on television to say there's a global recession. In fact, it only fell 4.5%. Anyway, both of those companies are in the Dow Jones Transportation Average, the oldest U.S. stock index, and on Friday, it fell below its June low. So that makes it the first of the key stock market indices to do that. The industrials are still 3% above their June low. The S&P, as I said, is about 5% above it and the NASDAQ is about 8% above its June low. But one of the oldest market tenets is that the transports lead the rest, because if goods aren't being transported at the same rate they're being made, that infers a decline in demand. So the transports might be signaling weakness in the global economy. At least we know that won't come as a surprise. Almost none of the fund managers pulled by Bank of America in their September survey think Global profits are going to improve. But is that in the price? Well, to the degree that global markets tend to move in sync with their earnings, unless there's major stimulus like there was in early 2020, then the answer is maybe it isn't in the price. At a minimum, we need earnings to stay flat. And more and more people are questioning that now when they hear people like the CEO of FedEx saying we're entering a global recession. Well, As of Friday last week, we're 178 trading days into the year. That gives 2022 the dubious distinction of being the sixth worst year since 1928 for the S&P. The bad news is none of the other years managed to recoup enough of their losses to make them up years. They were all years when the S&P was down. The good news is that the remaining 74 trading days of the year, for eight of them, the index managed to rise higher than where it was on September 16th. Actually, that's still not really, really good news when you think about it, because that means the odds were up from here by the end of the year are only slightly better than 50%. And from now until the end of September, unfortunately, the historic averages don't look great either. In fact, since 1928, the S&P's most bearish period of the year is in late September. October also has quite a few down days. Then typically there's a rally in November and December into the end of the year. Of course, those are just averages. So let me tell you our house view. Our equity strategist, Mathieu Ratcheter, says the summer rally was typical of bear market rallies. Ultimately, it failed because the market thought the Fed would relax and it didn't. He wrote last week that lower inflation prints later this year will allow the Fed to relax, but we're not there yet. In the meantime, earnings estimates are still too optimistic and rates are high, so it's best to stay defensively positioned. And bigger picture, here's the view from our CIO, Yves Bonzon. He wrote last week that the Jackson Hole Central Bank Symposium was when the market realized the Fed wasn't easing up. And the situation now is one where, even if inflation is peaking and we do think it'll come down, the Fed's going to keep tightening until there's clear evidence of that. But he also wrote that if the S&P falls toward 3,600 in the coming weeks, we would sell the put options we bought in mid-August and deploy cash. Well, actually, 3,600 is not that far below where the index is today. It's seven percent lower. I'll end with the dollar. Because it's very possible a lot depends on that. It's always had an inverse relation to risk assets, but especially so over the past year. As much as the global backdrop favors the dollar, we should ask ourselves, can the Federal Reserve really keep this monetary tightening up forever? And meanwhile, the European Central Bank is getting more hawkish. The ultra-dove Haruhiko Kuroda will be stepping down as governor of the Bank of Japan next April. Maybe just looking at yield spreads today is too myopic and we should be starting to think more about 2023 and 2024. Then we would see that a lot of 2022's bad news has actually been baked in the price and the U.S. dollar is very overvalued relative to other large economies if we use purchasing power parity, in other words, the cost of goods in the U.S. relative to other large economies. Just think about how cheap things are in Korea now or Europe or Japan. Any asset priced in euros is now 20% cheaper than it was at the beginning of last year. Any asset priced in yen is now 30% cheaper, and that includes stocks. Sometimes you have to think about things that way. A lot of this is baked in the price. This is Mark Matthews signing off for now. I wish you a great week ahead, and I'll speak to you again next Monday. Goodbye.
0: You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Bear. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Bear, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research.